0: Today, in the city of David, a Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. Well, let's pray. Father God, we uh, gather here a week before Christmas in our usual worship setting, but with a, a, a different focus than maybe throughout the year. God, we, we focus in this season on one of the greatest things that you've ever done in history and that is the breaking into this world uh, with yourself physically as a human being in, in the man Jesus. And so God, as we're spending some time as a church parking in front of uh, this idea of the incarnation of Christmas, of, of a savior who came for us, we pray that you would give us wisdom right now, ears to hear and eyes to see that, Lord, that there will not be one of us here or at one of our other campuses or venues or even watching online in which the message of Christmas escapes us. Lord, may that not happen to any of us, but may we all know very clearly what you have done then, what you are doing now, and what you ask of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. Amen. Well, one of the things that many of you might or might not know about me is that uh, I just can't stand complexity I don't like complexity. Some of you thrive on complexity. God has wired you that way and I I respect that. In fact, I surround myself with people that love intricacies and details and complexities precisely because I don't. I've been that way ever since I was a little kid. I can remember when my mom as a child would ask me to clean my closet. My closet was the absolute most complex, messy thing that I had growing up. And once a year she'd ask me to clean it, and I would, and I'd sort through all the stuff. And I kid you not, I'd be like nauseous for hours afterward having to deal with that kind of complexity. It happens to me every Tuesday here at our church I come on Tuesday, I have anywhere between six and eight meetings that last anywhere between a half an hour to two hours, and I'm inundated at a large church like this with lots of details and problems and issues, and again, what I simply label complexity, and I come home Tuesday night just drained. I mean, nauseous, drained. I mean, if I did that every day, I'd weigh 150 pounds, which might be good, but I I, I just, that kind of complexity just drains me. And so the positive side of it is is that I am what uh, philosophers might call a reductionist. I, I tend to respond to the world around me by taking all that complexity and reducing it To its simple form and that can be dangerous you got to be careful with that because you can not not give uh, enough attention to the complexity but great writers like c.s lewis and modern-day tim keller are are good reductionists they're good at reducing the complexity of our lives into more easy to understand bite-sized chunks and the reason that that's important for you to understand is that when i was considering what we wanted to do this christmas I don't know about you, I just I get inundated with the complexity of this season. I mean, eight Christmas Eve, or, or Christmas uh, performances we have. We have 15 Christmas Eve performances here or worship services at our church. And then, you know, I have parties to go to and staff to attend to and people's lives. And it's just overwhelming to me. And so when I thought about what I wanted to preach on, and now this will make sense to some of you, I thought one verse. That's what I want to preach on. I want to spend time four weeks in front of one verse as a church, and let's go deep in that verse, let's understand this verse. And I started rereading the Christmas story this past summer, and when I got to Luke chapter 2, verse 11, it was like God spoke to me and said, that's the verse. If there was ever one verse that communicates the entire Christmas message with all of its complexity in a very simple, easy to understand way, it's this verse, Luke chapter two, verse 11. This is a verse we're spending all of December in. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Man, if you ever wondered what Christmas is about, this is it. This verse was given, as many of you know, to a bunch of uneducated shepherds in the fields the night Jesus was born by one of God's angels. Can't get much more clear than that. And the, and the shepherd says basically four things, and these are the four weeks of this, of this uh, series that we're in, for today. We looked at that two weeks ago. And I simply argued that the, that the power of the today back then is the same power of the today now. That what today meant back then is very similar to the imminency of of our day and age and how relevant Jesus is. And then last week, Schrader visited us. Did you guys like it when Tom came here? I did. He's just amazing. And and Tom's a simpleton just like me. Tom, Tom took this idea of born and the incarnation. And you remember what his main point was? It was so easy to understand. He said Jesus was born so that he might die so that we might live. That's how he explained the incarnation does. Wow, very profound. He was born so that he might die so that we might live. Today, we're gonna take a look at this idea of Savior. And then next Sunday, for the two of you that come back for services, we're gonna look at, at Christ the Lord. We hope more of you come back, but it's Christmas Day. I'll be here, Troy will be here, but we're gonna look at the Lordship of Christ on Christmas Day. And I gotta tell you guys, though each of these weeks fire me up, I am probably most fired up about what we're gonna look at today. Focusing on just one word, this little but power-packed word, savior. It's a religious word to be sure, not used very often in everyday language, at least I'm sure most of you don't. It's it's a religious word, however, that most Americans are familiar with. If you ask most Americans what does a, a savior mean to you, they would simply mean somebody who saves, somebody who delivers somebody from something. And so used in a religious or spiritual context and specifically in light of Luke 2.11 as Jesus is referred to right at his birth as a savior, the question you and I have to ask, the operative question to deal with is what specifically does the Bible mean by Jesus being a savior? Or even more pointedly, what is it that he came to save us from? What are the things that Jesus has said to deliver us from? This is the key question we have to answer. And though it might be very clear to you, I'm telling you, a lot of Christians really fumble around with the answer to this question of what is it specifically that Jesus come to save us from? And in answering this question, I would suggest to you that the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus came to save us on two distinct levels what we're gonna call an eternal level, and then what we're gonna call a temporal, or here and now level. Eternally and temporally, if you can start thinking in those two uh, venues, those are the two levels that Jesus came, or distinct areas that Jesus came to save us within. So we're gonna spend the rest of our time taking a look at each one so that we fully understand them and what it is is that we call him savior. So first, notice with me that Jesus saves us eternally. And let's be even more clear, he saves us eternally from sin and separation from God. Man, if you don't hear anything else today, I know I say that quite often, hear this one because this is the heart of the gospel. That Jesus came to save us, and that first and foremost, he came to save us for all of eternity from what? From sin and separation from God. Now, to best understand this, i got to ask you, and this is going to sound like, again, such a simple question, but I'm not sure many Christians have a good answer to this. Have you ever wondered why the Bible calls the salvation that Jesus came to offer the world the good news? Have you ever wondered why they call it the the good news? I mean, the Bible could have called it a lot of other things. They could have called it the great news. They could have called it the amazing news. They could have called it the new news. I mean, there's lots of things the Bible could have called it, but in the, Hebrew, in the Greek language, they called it the the, the the good agathos news. And the question is why? You see, I think the reason why, and, and you've got to think about this with me right now, is that good only means something if there is such thing as bad, right? I, mean, I hope you all understand that, that. That good is the kind of term that's on a continuum. Good is the kind of term that, 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 re, that involves bad because without bad, then you'd never understand anything other good. Here's the best analogy I can give you. If I say to you right now, I'm holding my Bible high, most of you understand what I'm saying. I'm holding it high. But the only reason that you know what high means is because you know what low means. And without low, you'd never have any kind of understanding of high. Does that make sense to you? And it's the same with good. Philosophers tell us that without any idea of bad, good's opposite, good would have no meaning at all. And so once we understand this, the question then becomes, because now we're starting to understand why maybe the Bible calls the coming of Jesus good news, then the question becomes, what then is the bad news that makes the good news so good? (laughs) And that's really a good question to ask. And the answer is very clear. The Bible misses no words on this, and that is it's sin and separation from God. You see, the Bible makes it really clear that all of humanity, all of us, this is where we're all equal, is in a state of fallenness whereby our human nature is not up to par as God originally created it. In other words, we're born with a fallen nature that likes to do our own thing that is capable of making horrendous and terrible decisions and mistakes. And because of this, and because of, in light of an absolutely holy and good God, we got a problem. Because God, in his absolute goodness, cannot be in the presence of sin. He cannot be in the presence of anything that is not holy. And so when we are not holy, when we are fallen, he can't be in our presence And there's a separation, there's a gap that exists between humanity and God. And again, I know this is hard to talk about because in our world today, people, even though I think they know it and intuitively feel it, really don't like to admit that they are fallen and sinful. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, most people today try to look at their neighbor and say, well, you know, I'm kind of good compared to them, so I guess I must be good. But the problem is, is you're comparing yourself to the wrong person. God says, compare yourself to his declared standard, which is again, why the Bible is so important and ask yourself how you measure up here. So when people have trouble seeing their fallenness, you know what I do? And and it's really not not very threatening to people. I just say, you know what? Let's match your life up against what? Let's say the 10 commandments in the Old Testament, right? I mean, there's 492 commandments given in the Old Testament and, and some of them are really hard to live up to. Let's just look at the 10 most simple ones and see how you're doing. And so you turn to Deuteronomy 5 or Exodus chapter 20 where the 10 commandments are. And and, and again, I've done this so many times with people. I say, now let's just match your life up before them. So here's the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. What does that mean? Well, have you ever put anything before God in your life? Has anything ever taken first place status in your life that shouldn't take first place status because that's where God should be, yes or no? And what are most people gonna say? Well, of course, I'm not doing very well. What's next? Um, Well, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that doesn't mean just just swearing and saying GD. It means uttering the name of God outside of a worshipful, or I really mean it, type of context. You ever use the name of God outside of that context? Well, yeah, yeah, I have. I'm not doing very well. What's next? Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Like unless you live in Grand Rapids, no one in culture is doing that anymore. So like, you know, I'm not not doing very well on that one. Okay, what's next? Oh, here, here, I got a good one here. Honor your father and mother. You know, I do that one. I send them a Christmas card every year. I call them every other month. I mean, I'm I'm doing pretty well. Well, I'll give you that one, even though I'm not sure you understand what honor means. Then people start to feel good about themselves. You shall not murder. And they go, finally, there's one. Finally, there's one I live up to. I'm not a murderer. Good, what's next? You shall not commit adultery. About one third of American males have committed adultery, we think, and so two-thirds of you are out of that one. One third of you are starting to sweat a little bit. Number nineteen, you shall not steal. Or not not number nineteen, number eight, but it's verse nineteen, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. You ever taken a paperclip from work? <laughs> you ever taken anything that wasn't yours? You shall not bear false witness. Again, we get out of that one in our world by making a distinction between white lies and black lies, right? You know, just a little white lie. Well, there's nothing about that in here. Either you lied or you didn't. And then this is my favorite one. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, field, servant, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Which means when you're walking around your neighborhood, you don't admire the BMW and say, I want that. You don't look at your neighbor's new backyard and say, I want that. You know, and again, Christians are sneaky. There's some people that try to say, well, what it really means, so much love it when they say that, what it really means is that you should not desire it to the point that you want to take it from them. I go, really? You think that's what it means? I mean, that that would be stealing. They already covered that one. No, no, the only thing that that can mean, is that going to break if I sit on it? Okay, yeah. So uh, the, the only thing that it could mean is that to desire something that God has not given you up to this point is unhealthy for your soul. And that's why it's so important that we don't try to compare ourselves to our neighbors. So again, just a simple look at the 10 Commandments, I think reveals to us in an honest way that we all fall short that we all have sinful, even ugly parts of our lives. And the simple point of the Bible is, is that that separates us from a holy and good God. I was having a discussion with a a friend of mine this week about the gospel. And it's a very, very honest young man and, and very serious in his seeking of the Lord. And at one point this week, we were talking about this idea of sin and separation and he totally agreed with it and this guy is very analytical kind of thinking like an engineer and he gave me an example this guy gave me an example that I, I'd never thought of and he said it would kind of be like two magnets I got a picture of him here he said it would be like two magnets that are both magnetized north or both magnetized south and if you know anything about magnetism that would mean that those magnets repel each other And he said it would be kind of like taking two magnets that are are magnetized the same way and trying to push them together, the magnet of us and the magnet of God. But because of sin, you can't push them together, and there's a big gap between them. And I thought, what a great (laughs) illustration. Because that's exactly what the Bible is saying. That's the bad news. As you're going to see in a second, makes the good news so amazing. That we are separated from God due to our sin, each and every one of us. And this sin and separation is the root of all of our ills. As the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. This is the bad news that Jesus came to save us from. And so now, and only now, are we ready to look very positively to what this good news then is all about. And to do this, I'm going to share with you one passage, again, from the book of Romans that I think says it all. It's very powerful in helping us understand why and how Jesus is Savior. Romans 5, verses 6 through 9. It says this. It says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This is it, gang. (laughs) This is the Jesus that came to save us from our sin and separation from God. Did you pick it up? His wrath, his anger. He's mad at the distance. He's even mad at us. And as Schrader put so eloquently last week, Jesus was born so that he might die so that we might live. You see, that's the good news, that Jesus grew up to be a man, a perfect man, because he was God come for us. And he took, his, he took our sin and shame upon himself on the cross. He bore our sin on himself so that we might be forgiven by God and brought back into right relationship with him. And again, if you don't believe me, look at Ephesians 2, verse 13, picking up on this separation theme. Again, think of those magnets. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. One side of the magnetic poles have been reversed. So now it's north to south, or south to north. And what happens then? They connect. And that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to do something for you that you couldn't do for yourself, and that is to buy back, if you will, your soul for God, to to bear your sin upon himself so that you might be forgiven of all of your sin. And this is really important to understand right now. I mean, if you're you're dozing off at all, boy, tune in right now. This does not mean that you will now live a sinless life. Do you all understand that? (laughs) I mean, the operative word here, and this is what he came to save us from, is forgiveness. He came to save us by forgiving us. And so you're still gonna struggle with sin in your life, but the distance that sin created is now gone precisely because Jesus took our sin upon himself and in this way forgave us so that we might come to God. And let's face it, we all know that's what forgiveness does, right? I mean, if you're married, and you've ever offended your spouse, and your spouse says to you, oh my gosh, I didn't mean to hurt you, I'm so sorry, and you forgive him or her, let me ask you a question. Are you realistic enough to know that they just might do it again? They might. You hope they don't, but I've been married almost 30 years, and the woman I'm married to is very sinful, and so I know that she might do it again. Now let's reverse that, I'm very sinful. I, I mean, I'm I married to an amazing woman. I can't tell you many times. I've apologized to Kim for the same thing. And there's times I've been apologizing, going to myself, I know I'm gonna do it again. Do I tell her right now? <laughs> and that's why the, the beauty of forgiveness is that forgiveness in the moment says, I love you enough that I'm gonna let it go. I'm not gonna hold it against you, even though I know in your fallen nature, you might hurt me again. That's exactly what God does for us in Jesus. He says, I love you enough that because of the giving of my son, I'm going to forgive you eternally for the sin that you've done against me, even though I know you're not going to live a perfect life from this point on. And the only way to appropriate this for our lives, gang, is to believe. Again, this is where our world messes this whole thing up. They they honestly think, and some of you do too, that you can work your way to heaven that now you just need to be really good and and, and just do all the right things, and if that way you can prove yourself to God, that maybe we'll take mercy on you or forgive you. Oh my gosh, there is nothing of that in the Bible. Look at how John tells us that we need need to appropriate Jesus as Savior into our lives. He says, yet to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus, to those who, say this word with me, believed, you didn't do that well enough, say it again, believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You cannot attain this salvation simply through trying hard or working your way to heaven. And the logic is both impeccable and insulting. Because the logic the Bible uses is that it basically says your sin is too great, the gap is too large, no amount of human morality is ever going to match a holy God. And because of that, the only option God had in his love was to offer us forgiveness. And the only way that was going to come was to deal with our sin directly, by sending Christ. What does it mean that Jesus saves us? What does it mean that we call him savior? He has offered us eternal salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and the bringing us up to to God. That's what it means, first and foremost. Now, believe it or not, it doesn't stop there. Uh, Some Christians think it does, and this is all they ever talk about, but it doesn't stop there because Jesus didn't come just to give what somebody once called to give us fire insurance. (laughs) He came also to give what I'm going to call life insurance and life here and now. And this brings us to the second level of salvation or deliverance that Jesus came to bring, and that is that he came to save us temporally. Temporally, If you look up the word temporal in the dictionary, it simply means pertaining to present life. It means here and now, all the, 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 the time-bound things of our earthly existence. And get this, gang, the Bible makes it clear that the salvation that Jesus came to bring, now watch this, touches your very everyday life in a very practical, down-to-earth way. In other words, there's a temporal nature to it. And yet it's right at this point that we need to be extremely careful. Because the obvious question that, again, we should ask, as we did with the eternal nature of God's salvation, is that if there is a temporal salvation, in what specific ways then does Jesus save us temporally? In other words, what ways does he deliver us this side of heaven? And what does he actually deliver us from? Those are good questions to ask. And the reason that I say we need to be careful here is because many Christians today tend to claim promises here that I'm going to show you in a minute are not promises from God, while conversely, in claiming promises that aren't really promises, they miss the actual promises that God gives when it comes to his temporal deliverance or salvation. Let me show you what I mean. And to do this, I need to ask you a few questions of which I want you to simply answer yes or no. You ready for this? Does, and in fact, you know what? Just answer this to yourself because you might get these wrong and it'll embarrass you later. So just answer these to yourself. Does Jesus promise to save your failed marriage, yes or no? Just answer that to yourself. Does Jesus promise to keep you from poverty and bless you financially? Just answer yes or no to yourself. Does Jesus promise? I can't even say this one with a straight face. That your kids will turn out fine and never veer from the straight and narrow. Just answer yes or no to yourself. Does Jesus promise that he will deliver you from all your negative emotions like anger, hurt, fear, sorrow, and even depression? Just answer yes or no. Does Jesus promise that he will save you from all physical suffering and diseases if you just ask him to take it away, yes or no. See, if you and I were having a conversation, the vast majority of evangelical Christians today would answer no to all of those things. But, but some would answer yes, and we'll see why in a minute here. But, but most of you would say no. But the reason I say it's tricky, because now let me reword all five of those questions in one question, but worded a little bit differently. And for this one, I want you to answer out loud when I'm done. Here's how I would word this question. Is Jesus, however, in the business of, at times, healing broken marriages, getting people on the path of financial freedom, writing our erring kids, healing damaged emotions, and freeing us from awful physical diseases to the point that we should regularly ask him to save us? in and from these things yes or no yes Yes, of course you see the tv preachers not all of them but more than i would care to listen to would have us believe now, now don't miss this that there is a firm and universal promise that jesus came to save us from bad marriages money problems erring children damaged emotions and bodily infirmities And even use passages like Psalms 103 verse 3 and Isaiah 53 verse 5 that you can look up later. That they say, suggest to us that Jesus wants to heal all of our diseases and ills. The only problem is, is that when you read them in the context from which they were written, as I did again this week, it's talking about our soul. He's talking about our spiritual life that is where he established because he's offering us eternal salvation. Of course there's gonna be complete healing of our soul in heaven and even partial healing now. But nevertheless, they dangle the faith carrot over our heads and tell us that if we just have enough faith, then all of our marital, financial, parental, emotional, and bodily suffering will be healed, and they argue the opposite is also true, and this does a lot of damage, that if you don't experience Jesus' saving here, then you don't really trust and believe him. And before you know it, you're feeling like a subpar Christian who really doesn't trust Jesus because your life is such a mess and it must be your faith's fault and and, and you're really messed up with God. And I would simply point out very humbly and very simply that, that, that this belies a gross misunderstanding between what Jesus actually promises and what he might or might not do in our lives based upon his grace in its various forms. And again, I want to be very clear here because I don't want any emails on this issue. This is not to suggest that at times Jesus does not heal us in these areas. Of course he does. But but I'm simply letting you know that it's not a universal promise to all believers at all times. If you tie this idea of him as savior universally and absolutely to those areas of your life, you will be sorely disappointed at the end of the day. And again, if you're not convinced yet, this is always like the nail in the coffin on this one. Just consider the apostles' lives, the 12 disciples. I mean, Paul the apostle set himself up as a a prime example. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He was like saying, I'm the quintessential Christian, follow me. And the guy had major health problems in which he prayed that God would take them away. And what did God say? I'll summarize it for you. No, and he didn't take it away from him. And so he had them all of his lives and every one of them lived in poverty. So so if the name it, claim it, people were right, that all we gotta do is name our fortune and we get it, then the apostles are the biggest failures in the history of the Christian church. So the reality is is that those can't be the things that God promises when it comes to his temporal saving this side of heaven. However, once we get this, we're now ready to embrace what the Bible actually does promise because believe it or not, there are some things. And here's the deal. When you understand what the Bible does promise, it's hefty enough. Like some of you are going to sweat under the collar in about four minutes, I predict. I'm not a prophet, but trust me, you're going to. Because when you realize what you've been missing out on, the promises that he does give on temporal level, I'm I'm hoping you don't feel guilty. I'm hoping you feel thirsty for the kind of deliverance God wants to give you. I'm gonna wrap up. We have just a few minutes before the communion table by giving you two examples of things that the Bible promises you can tie to this idea of him being your savior this side of heaven. What does Jesus save us from temporally? Here's the first example. He, he, He saves us from patterns of destructive behavior. And I thought long and hard about that wording this week. In fact, this is like the fifth iteration of how I wanted to say it because I I want to be very clear. He he promises that if we will follow him, that he will save us or at least offer us salvation from patterns of destructive behaviors. In other words, just like he offers eternal salvation... Through the forgiveness of sin, he offers us this temporal salvation when it comes to the things that grab us by the throat and become patternistic on a sinful and destructive level in our everyday lives. And if you don't believe me, I want you to look at a couple of passages with me right now, and I'm gonna be very bold about this, that promise he will do this in your life if you will but trust him. These are passages written to believers in light of him being our savior. And notice with me what he says. I love this one. It's challenging. This is where you're going to start to sweat. 1 Corinthians 10:13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to all of humankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it, or as one translation says, stand up under it. Whoa. Again, I don't know about you, but, but it sounds to me uh, like God is in the business of offering believers the kind of salvation that allows them to overcome sinful and destructive patterns of behavior in their lives. If you don't believe that one, look at a, another great passage on this, Galatians five sixteen to 19. Again, written to believers who have the Holy Spirit inside of them, he says, "'So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious.' sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, now watch this, that those who live like this, patternistic, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, Folks, I I know this is very, very heavy stuff for some of you, but just dial into this. As a believer, you are in a battle. Every day between the flesh, your human fallen nature, and the spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. And sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. The the Bible's very realistic on that level. But for spirit-filled believers... Who are faithfully following Jesus did you catch the wording here it says that we don't have to live like this that we get to be the kind of people who experience God's amazing redemptive grace a grace that empowers us to overcome and learn to not engage in destructive patterns of behavior that separate us from God and even from loved ones around us And though it takes time, we have to understand this, this is a process of maturation and learning to walk with God and hide yourself in him, and it can take a long time, even years for some of us to learn to do this. And though it is a three steps forward, two steps backward kind of process, I mean, God gets this. Make no mistake, it's still a moving forward each day kind of process where we experience victories And experience freedom from patterns of destructive behavior. And some of you have been so mired in these things for years as a believer in Jesus. Because you've never really claimed, I'm telling you, this promise for your life. That if you would finally get serious about him as Savior of your life, Lord, as we're going to talk about next week, and submit yourself to him in those areas. And start to really work on your soul. Believe it or not, here's what God promises you. You can experience freedom from these things in your life, they do not need to grip you by the throat. I got a very real and wonderful text this week from a friend of mine that I've been working with lately on some of these areas in in his life. And again, he's been a Christian for a very long time and been in the battle and he's got a wife and kids and all this stuff. And and we were talking back and forth via text this week on, uh, on his life. And he sent me this text, I think it was on Thursday, and I was just so deeply encouraged by this one. And And let me read you for a part of what he wrote. He says, I'm in a better place than I've ever been before. I'm eating right, working out sporadically, in the word every day. He says, I have zero addictions or strongholds in my life, not even caffeine. I wondered why I put that one in there. But he says, people come up to me and tell me that they see a difference in me. He goes on to say, I've been working on being a strong and faithful follower of God for a while. I'm trying to stand before him with a repentant heart of obedience. To be blameless and true in relationship with him is my daily desire. You see, this guy's had some really dark, deep times. He's had some patterns in his life, even as a believer in Jesus, that have gripped him by the throat. But he's an example, and I see these all the time, of people that learn over a a period of time what victory is can look like and I'm telling you that one of the main ways that you learn to do this is to understand and start to see Jesus as a savior not just of your soul eternally but of your your very life right now and though he might not always fix your failed marriage and though he won't give you all the money that you want and and, and though you don't have complete control over your kids and and, and though you might not have a great body that works all the time and those things are all beyond your control And those are things that he says he might or might not say. He has said this. He will keep you from going down that pit of destructive behaviors. That you do have a choice over. And he came to save you from that. He really is a savior. And as you're chewing on that, we're completely out of time because we have to go to the communion table. Let me just share with you one other thing by way of example. And this will be very freeing for some of you. And again, these are just two examples of Jesus' temporal salvation. And that's that he saves us temporally from overwhelming feelings of disillusionment and despair. And again, you've got to be really careful with this one. How many of you heard me earlier say that Christians are going to struggle with hurt, anger, sorrow, depression, even anxiety and worry? Of course we will. That's not what I'm saying here. See, there's a difference between those everyday emotions that we all experience and what I'm going to call overwhelming and absolute feelings of disillusionment and despair, what our world today calls hopelessness. See, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 36 to 39, sum it up neatly. It says, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming, Jesus, will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in one who shrinks back. And I love this summary. He says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed but to those who have faith and are saved. That's what we belong to. And the reality is, is that you never need to give way to absolute feelings of despair and disillusionment, hopelessness, because he is your hope. That's what he came to bring us. That's what he promises to bring us. And so it can never get so bad that you have no hope. It never can. Because he is yours. I, I, I can't tell the whole story, but I sat with a guy last February who was, had some major physical problems, got to the absolute end of his rope, and announced to his wife and children he was going to kill himself. And he was going to do a Gandhi. He was going to go on a hunger strike and, and kill himself. And when I came in that day, he was drinking a chocolate milkshake, and I said, if you keep drinking those, you won't die, so keep drinking those. And, and, uh, but he was really hurting, and, and he wanted to die, and he didn't want to live. I spent three months with him trying to convince him that he has hope. That as a follower of jesus even though his body wasn't working very well he has hope he wouldn't see it and i think i share this with you guys you know what i do when i can't convince people of something and it happens to me all the time i pray i pray like crazy because that they can't duck and so i was praying for him like crazy and i remember the time in june of this last year where he turned the corner and he started to see jesus again as his savior as his hope and he's celebrating christmas with us now as one who has hope in Jesus. See, I can deal with sadness. I can deal with fear, anger, hurt, anxiety. Those are all very real emotions that I experience by about 8 a.m. every morning. And so I get that. But there's no reason that any of us have to settle for less. We don't have to settle for hopelessness because he came to save us from those things. So here's what you need to know this Christmas season. Jesus came as Savior. It was declared right at his birth. Doesn't that blow you away? Like talk about ruining the end at the beginning. I mean, they just, they declared it right at his birth. He is savior. And now you know what he is savior of. He is your eternal savior, came to save you from sin and separation from God. And on an everyday level, my gosh, he offers you complete freedom from terrible patterns of destructive behavior that have plagued you for too long. And he wants to save you from the hopelessness that many in our world have. What a savior we have. Let's celebrate him now at the communion table. Would you bow with me and pray? Father God, I thank you for the Jesus that we're celebrating this Christmas season and his birth. And God, I feel bad for people in our world that either have no interest or have gross misunderstanding of who he is. And I pray it would be none of us here today and none of us watching online or in our venues and campuses because God, we know better. We know that he has come to save us eternally and temporally and that there are some clear promises tied to that. So I pray, God, you'd encourage the weak ones here this morning. I pray that you'd encourage them that they have but believed in Jesus. They have a hope. They have an assurance. They have a power in their lives. It has personality behind it, a Savior. And God, may we thank you for it. So meet us now at this communion table. Remind us of the core of our faith and who it is in. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.